Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I am Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. I am joined by Harvey Young of Boston University. Harvey, how is the semester going in Boston? Uh, it's going great, actually. I mean, obviously, there's a pandemic still happening and all, but I'm teaching a class this semester. I'm actually teaching two classes, but there's one that I love, my AFAM theater class. So it's it's the highlight of my week. I've been seeing the Facebook posts you've been you've been putting out from that. Um, you've been getting some amazing guests, right? Yeah, every week we have someone stop by and visit. So we had Phaedra Chatard Carpenter come by this past week, and before that, some a different mix of playwrights and theater makers. So it's a lot of fun. That's fantastic. I'm glad to hear you're in good spirits and that things are going reasonably well. I am joined also by Brian Herrera of Princeton University. Brian, I've really been enjoying your hashtag theater click roundups of theater-related resources online. I have to say I also have been enjoying your pandemic quaff updates. And the quaff, re- uh, <laughs> listeners listeners can't see this, but, but listeners, the quaff is beautiful. It's about shoulder It's looking length. good. Yeah, yeah. How are you doing, Brian? I'm doing okay. The durational performance that is our lives. Uh, you know, the because uh, my pandemic quaff, I thought it was going to be a short-term durational performance, but it's turned. We're in a fifty-second or third week of documentation of it, but it's about uh, fifteen or oh, fourteen months since my last haircut. So, um, do you do you have a definitive endpoint in mind? Are you going to go after you get your your, your fully vaccinated, or um, do you just want to carry this into the future? I think the I think the long hairs will probably be part of my future moving forward. Not quite this long. It is going to be contingent on when I, um, well, uh, announcement, big announcement, everyone. I do plan to do a full on drag glamour shoot using my actual hair in old 80s glamour shot style. Um, <laughs> so I think the cut will follow that event. Uh, so there may be some logistics that delay my getting the cut. I've got to get the hair and makeup people together in a pandemic context so I can have that documentation of uh, finding the joy in the pandemic where we can. This is amazing. Listeners, you heard it here first on on tap. Um, Brian, I expect that we will be kept up to date and and everyone will be able to check out this this glamour performance. Um, Today on the podcast, we will talk about the ostensible post-pandemic changes that theater academia and academia in general may witness. Um, this sudden and forced transformation of work in higher education, like in many other sectors, has revealed many different possibilities, possibilities of doing things differently. We will both attempt to predict the future uh, and talk about what uh, changes may remain after herd immunity, but also offer our recommendations and wishes for what we hope we'll keep from this uh, a parenthetical way of working. Um, we are also very excited to welcome back Kate Bredesen of Reed College, in our second segment to talk about and give our listeners a view of the ongoing occupation of French theater spaces, which is still going on in France now. This is part of a social movement protesting the neglect of theater and cultural workers in France. And we'll ask, uh, why isn't this happening here in the United States? Finally, we watched Rada Blank's 2020 film, The 40-Year-Old Version, a comedic filmic interpretation of Blank's own experiences as a Black playwright approaching middle age and seeking artistic satisfaction through rap. 
Before turning on to before turning to, to those topics, I should say, uh, I'd like to pass the mic to Brian, who has offered to do the freeform land acknowledgement local history dispatch for this episode. Brian. Yeah, thank you, panel. And I should acknowledge before I get started that I'm speaking for all four of us today, so I will inevitably make an error. And indeed, I think the journey of land acknowledgments and incorporating, the, incorporating them into our practice is learning uh, forward and understanding that error comes along the way. So please indulge any mistakes of pronunciation or, or designation that I offer. Uh, Kate Bridison is joining us from the traditional village sites of the Mulnama, the Kathlamet, the Clackamish, the Tualodun, Kalapuya, and Molalab as well well as the bands of the Chinook and many other tribes who made their homes along the Columbia River uh, in and around Portland, Oregon. Panel, who is, call is calling from the traditional ancestral lands of the Osage Nation uh, in and near St. Uh, Louis, Missouri. Harvey, we're hearing him from the territory of the Wampanoag and the Massachusetts people in Boston. And I am joining you from the traditional unceded ancestral lands of the Nanticoke Lenny Lenape in Princeton, New Jersey. And having thus acknowledged the lands from which we are each speaking today, I would also like to offer a digital land acknowledgement. The text I will be reading was crafted by Adrienne Wong of Spider Web Show in Ontario, Canada, and uh, she, who has graciously allowed others to borrow the text I'll be reading and also to adapt it for their own needs. That text reads, since our activities are shared digitally to the internet, let's take a moment to consider the legacy of colonization embedded within the technologies, structures, and ways of thinking we use every day. We are using equipment and high-speed internet not available in many indigenous communities. Even the technologies that are central to much of the art we make leave significant carbon footprints contributing to changing climates that disproportionately affect indigenous peoples worldwide. We invite you to join us in acknowledging all of this as, we, as well as our shared responsibility to make good of this time and for each of us to consider our roles in reconciliation, decolonization, and allyship. Once again, that, those are the words of Adrienne Wong of Spider Web Show in Ontario, Canada, who offers that digital land acknowledgement uh, to anyone who wishes to adapt it for their own needs. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Brian. So today on the podcast, we wanted to do what a lot of people are, are already doing, um, with vaccinations being distributed at a reasonably brisk pace in the United States, at least, though not without um, all sorts of problems and inequities. Um, it's already possible to foresee a tentative return to in-person classes, to quote-unquote live in-person staged events to international and national and, and travel within national borders. Um, but the reality will be much more complicated, we imagine, than a simple reversion to the ways of living and working that we knew in 2019. So we wanted to ask what in our profession will change and what should become the holdovers from 2020? How will our sudden shift into networked communication play out in 2021 and beyond uh, in our classes, on in campus life, performance events, um, but also the, in our conferences and the activities of our big professional associations? Um, so 
we wanted to have a chance both to predict, right? Uh, what do we think it's going to be like in a year or two? What will have? What will we find is different and permanent compared to 2019? But then also, what would we like to see change? Um, um, so I don't know, Harvey. You could take any of these: teaching, research, um, meetings, and administration, which I know you do a lot of these days. Um, maybe even performance events on campus. What do you think we're going to hold on to from 2020 going in, on into the future? Well, my favorite thing by far that has emerged from the pandemic uh, has been the book launch, right? The idea that when there's a new book that comes out and you wanna have an event, a reading, uh, in which you want to invite people in, the pandemic has allowed us to introduce new work, have these dynamic conversations uh, to allow for you know, dozens, scores, hundreds of people, depending upon the scale of the uh, outreach. To, to join in and celebrate new work. And that's something that I had not seen previously. And so you, you see, you know, in the pre-pandemic world, you know, all the labor of publishing a book, you would have often a quite local book launch, book celebration within one's home campus. Uh, maybe some friends would organize something at the local bookstore. You would have maybe the reading or, or maybe the shared panel at some conference at the ASTR. Yeah, but there's something way more dynamic, much more focused, more celebratory in in this pandemic world that we're in. So I'm hopeful that the book launch will will remain in the in this current format. I mean, obviously, it's, we, let's. I mean, we want book cakes <laughs> to still exist. We want to have you know book wine as well, right? You know, but we should also maintain uh, this sort of spirit of collegiality that has emerged uh, virtually and remotely via yeah. I, I would tend to agree. I think maybe at the top of my list of wishes would be for scholarly communication to continue to make use of the of the technology that allows people to get together from all over the world. Um, I have, you know, in the past year, I've, I've been able to join in on symposia that were hosted in the UK, um, attend talks at different universities based on what I'm interested in and not just what happens to be within driving distance. Um, and I really hope that that sticks around because I really do think that the the spirit of scholarly communication and knowledge production has to do with sharing ideas. And that's something you can do with video and audio um, simultaneous communication. You don't always need the cake and the wine and, and, and all of that. It's less resource intensive. I hope that I can continue to drop in on you know, a symposium, a colloquium hosted anywhere in the world on the basis of my of my interest. So I do hope that sticks around too. Um, I don't know, uh, Brian. What do you think about? I, I would say I don't know teaching. Um, we at least at, at WashU, and I think at lots at lots of other places, we're finishing up our second semester of basically hybrid course modality, where either you're teaching fully remote and everything's happening over Zoom or another digital. Um, uh, technology, or you're doing what I've been doing, which is teaching in person in the classroom with masks and distancing, but always allowing students who can't be in person, who are quarantined, who have health issues, who for whatever reason aren't in the classroom to keep up. Do you imagine that teaching in a year is going to be more like 2019 or more like 2020? I, th I suspect that that'll have a lot to do with I, well, I don't know. I suspect that the the traditionalism of education will will um, will be will be a 
centrifugal uh, pull of force. So it would be a sort of a sort of a lot of uh, sort of existing sort of administrative protocols are still presuming that there is a kind of structure of how courses are offered and and where and things like classroom aligned with class size and all those kind of things. I think there's going to be a lot of additional apparatus that will sort of uh, encourage us to return to things as they were. I do think the two things that I am very much aware of is I am I think the place my anxiety about this question has really uh, has really rested the last few months has has been about what I anticipate to be to anticipate to be a fairly sizable culture shock of return. Um, the idea that when we come back and are suddenly now there's like after having 15 months or whatever where we've mostly been very controlled in how we are adjacent to other bodies um, to suddenly at a campus like mine which is 97 percent of the students at my campus live in the dorms there's going to be a lot of sort of uh, uh, lots of people pressed into certain spaces and I think folks are going to have both faculty staff and students all of, all of them are going to have some adjustment to what it means to return and I'm hoping that we can find ways to accommodate the fact that people are going to have different spaces of enthusiasm of being an adjacent to each other's bodies and that there's not going to be a presumptive uh, indeed coercive set of practices that say that good participation looks a certain way and I'm hoping that we're able to be responsive to what I think are going to be legitimate legitimate awarenesses and adjustments. And also, I think we've seen a number of, of articles and studies that certain students, this has actually been quite suitable for their own capacity to feel um, included and safe. And I even just had some conversations uh, in another context with um, folks who were talking about taking acting classes online and, and talking about how they were surprised at how either they or their students had certain uh, boundaries that they didn't have to dismantle because they were already in a space that they had a configuration. There was a kind of, and so there's certain kinds of things I'm hoping that we can continue to be responsive and as opposed to prescriptive about how we move forward and to allow folks to teach us how to do better um, based on what their needs actually are. The other thing is, is that going back to the previous thread, I have really appreciated the ability to, as we might say, zoom in to be a classroom visitor, uh, especially at institutions that might not have the resources to fly me out. Um, I've been able to do that a good number of times, and I've always found it to be really gratifying. And the times I've had, my, had guests come into my classes, it's been since we have some some technological fluencies in common because of this historical moment, it's made certain kinds of expanding, reaching beyond the bubble of my campus, either me as an individual or bringing somebody in, just uh, there's been a simplicity and people can get paid, but it doesn't cost as much or it's not as such an effort to sort of have a visitor who's coming to give your give a talk and visit a class to fill their day with other stuff. You know, it's like uh, I've been I've really enjoyed that. So I'm hoping that folks are um, um, I think on both of those lines that we have support from our, 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 our institutions um, to um, allow us to be gently experimental with how we return and so that there's not coercive prescriptions to saying now we're back, it's all back and everybody needs to be in the classrooms all the time in certain ways. Like I don't know that that will serve, um, I think, the, the, the stress and perhaps uh, shock of readjustment. There's a lot that's been brought up. I'm going to just point out a couple of issues or, or things that I think you have raised that I might want to go further into. And I don't know, Harvey, maybe you can pick up on one of these at your at your discretion. But the, the, the sort of evolution that I've seen 
over the past 12 months has been that initially my university was very concerned that faculty were not going to be in the classroom and that all students wanted was that in-person experience, the campus experience, and that the students and their tuition-paying parents were going to be very mad that faculty were unwilling to be in the classroom, right? And initially in the fall, I found my students really wanting to be in person, uh, you know, students asking if they could attend every class meeting in person. And then over the course of the fall semester, by the end, many of those students had realized, actually, I like being able to just turn on my computer and attend class from my dorm or my bedroom when I want. And so now it seems like there's been a a culture and an habituation to students um, liking the ability to pick and choose. But I expect that if we try to maintain those hybrid offerings, that a lot of faculty are going to be upset because the the management of the simultaneous in-person and remote um, interface is onerous. And I, I think a lot of us have been willing to go with the flow out of necessity, but that people are not going to want to. So I wonder if that tension is something that people are looking forward to. The other thread I just wanted to point out, and then Harvey, I want to hear your thoughts on either of these, is a question about exactly that that sort of campus visitor framework. We have a colloquium series here. Um, it's been, I could totally imagine saying to a, a guest, you don't need to fly and spend 36 to 48 hours in St. Louis and take all that time away from your life and your family. We'll pay you an extra bit on your fee, maybe, and you just do it from wherever you are. You spend extra time with our students after. There's a sort of formal time commitment. Do you, th- do you, either of you or, or Harvey, I suppose, do you think that we're going to see more of those sort of campus colloquium invited speaker things happening just online because it's less resource intensive, less expensive, less of a drain on people's energy? Or are people really going to want to have the in-person visitors? I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, on the one hand, there's an ease attached to it, right? The fact that you can I mean, I, I was part of a conversation last week with a novelist, and and we had I think 270 people who zoomed in. Uh, that being said, I believe something like 600 people <laughs> registered for it. <laughs> you know, and 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 we're seeing the 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 melt increase, uh, you know, by percentages. Certainly, as the weather warms up, but I think that there's such a thing as Zoom fatigue that's setting in on people. I would imagine that you're going to have some combination of the two. There's there's a wonderful way in which these conversations engage alumni, and you know universities are often looking for how to uh, not just connect with one's own core students, but also with the large alumni community. Uh, and I imagine there's going to be more programming along those lines. And the idea of a Zoom conversation series next year, especially when things are back in person, seems really appealing because you can have the best of both worlds. You can have the in-person series and also the the remote series. What I worry about a little bit is the fatigue that sets in for faculty you know where you're you're giving presentations again and again and it becomes and it feels a bit transactional and you don't have the recharge of the networks you know that you're building by being on campus and i personally find that when i visit a campus i look forward to not the talk and and in some ways not really the discussion afterwards it's the dinner uh it's the coffee that occurs on campus where i'm meeting someone i'm forming a friendship and i find that that's the reason why I accept the invitations, not to give the talk. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like for me, it's it's it works in both directions. My the social socially awkward part of myself, the introverted part of myself, finds the dinners 
ultimately pleasurable, but really also something I sometimes think I could just skip. <laughs> and I could imagine preferring in certain situations to spend two hours of a day giving a talk as opposed to two days. But then you're right, at the tail end of that, you've had experiences that I think are valuable, even if they're a little bit more, um, you pay a little bit more in the front end. The thing I think I've missed the most um, is uh, getting a sense of the landscape of a campus, especially in our field. You know, the fact that I have been to been to certain campuses um, and I know what the buildings are like and I know where the theater is in relation to other things. There's something about the landscape of the campus that I think I miss more than anything else. Uh, the conviviality. I, I appreciate the network and the de- and the deepening of relationships that can happen with a long-term visit. But the other side of it is, is as I've said, is I have been more willing to donate a visit than I would have would ever, like to not charge, not, to not ask for a fee. And I've done that in a couple occasions for, for campuses that don't have that discretionary impo- in- income or whose discretionary income of that side has been retracted as a result of pandemic uh, um, austerity. And then also other institutions, uh, one person said outright, I've wanted to bring you for years, but I've never had, an, I knew I never had enough money to pay you and to fly you out and to keep you up. And so I'm gonna seize this, I hope you're not insulted. And I'm like, no, this is great. And so it is that kind of thing of, of, of of I think in terms of distance and in terms of, of expense, um, there have been moments, and I think this happens in the theat- in, theatrically as well, where we have questions of access that have been reconfigured in this moment. Um, uh, the program in Gender and Sexuality Studies just a couple weeks ago hosted a conference, which is a collaboration that our campus has with Humboldt in Berlin. And we've had these symposiums before, and they've been very modestly attended. In this case, it was, again, the standard digital sign in, we had about 800 people sign up, about 400 people to 300 people actually participate, but they were across the globe. And it was really did allow what was aimed to be an international conversation. It allowed it to be. I've seen the similar phenomenon happening with the Telephone Hour, which has been a an initiative that came out of um, the music theater, music theater dance or music dance theater focus group of ATHA early on in the pandemic. Uh, Brian Van, Van de Ven- Brian Van Devender and Laura McDonald and Trevor Buffona started creating intellectual community. And what is really useful for that field, which has a lot of practitioners in the UK and a lot of practitioners in the US, it allowed there to be a sustained weekly, like an ongoing, they've had it nearly every week for a year. And graduate students, senior scholars have been able to offer uh, sort of a symposium in a collegial way, building networks. And, um, and so there's certain things that I'm hoping we have a both and future that it doesn't end up reverting to an either or to really sort of ask when we sort of are planning a program to say, is this an in-person event or is this something that maybe uses another model, like an asynchronous model, like Karim Kubchandani's uh, symposium, anti-symposium? Like, is this asynchronous? Is this synchronous? Is this is this in-person? Yeah. Is this remote? Is this hybrid? Um, are there certain events for a national conference, for example, that are offered remotely so that anybody, even if they couldn't make the conference, can join in in that way? Um, I'm hoping that that's a set of questions we now ask as we think about convening. I'd say that it's safe to say that we could predict that with some confidence, that everyone will now have learned the language and something about the technology of, of signing on. You know, you figure out the time zone, you you figure out if this is public, is this a Zoom meeting, is this a, a sort of seminar format? Um, I think there are all sorts of complicated and interesting questions related to 
will the increased participation that we've seen in 2020 and early 2021 die away once something more like normal life is available and you're faced with a choice of, you know, do I participate in this symposium for an hour and a half on my Friday afternoon or do I go to, you know, get drinks with my friends, which I can now do again? There may be something of people's attention and time that changes. But I bet we're going to continue. Now we know all these different modalities. We can launch them. We're going to continue to do that. Um, yeah, I, I want to just, a fo- yeah, just to follow up on, on what Brian said. I agree that I think that we're in this moment, well, we're heading toward a moment you know, when we have more options in terms of the modality and the form of, of these guest visits to ask why. why. Why are we having this person visit us, right? As opposed to let's have someone visit. <laughs> you know, like the follow-up now is why, let, why should we have this person visit? Is it because we want to have a conversation and create networks with our uh, let's say graduate students or faculty, then that might demand for the networking part of it for the person to be in person. Is it to provide a larger conversation for the field you know, that has a big outreach uh, beyond the university? Then I think that's an opportunity for, you know, for remote. Uh, is it is it a hybrid thing because you really want to have the dinner, but you also want to do the outreach thing? Then then, then that becomes hybrid in some manner. You know, so I think that a lot of times we haven't asked the question why. And and that and that why uh, question will be asked again and again, and it's important because because sometimes people have things because they want to uh, bolster reputation and rankings, you know. So they really want someone to fly in and see the building, see the new theater, see whatever else. And then other times, you know, the way they're going to bolster reputation and rankings is the biggest audience possible to attend an event. You know, so you can see the why uh, driving, you know, how to approach orchestrating the event. I think that's very apt. I think that absolutely will be a lot of the conversations going forward and planning things for next year. And it'll be fun next year to check in on the podcast and see how how correct were we. Um, um, now, though, I want to turn on to uh, uh, turn to another um, interesting pandemic related development, the occupation of French theaters. Um, In early March, protests around France began demanding better support of arts workers um, who, since the closure of cultural institutions, including theaters uh, back in October of 2020, have been without their métier, without their activity, without um, some share of their livelihood. Um, And these protesters were anticipating, I believe, the end of special unemployment benefits that were created last year for arts workers. Um, uh, So I don't want to give too much background on this before we introduce our guest. Um, But when we saw this story happening and people commenting on it online, we wanted to invite back our our friend of the podcast, Kate Bredesen, who is associate professor at Reed College. We wanted to have her back on the podcast. Listeners will remember Kate's appearance back in August of 2020 when she and Justine Casey reported on the protests for black lives in Portland, Oregon. Um, Kate is also the author author of Occupying the Stage, uh, the Theater of May 68, which was published by Northwestern University in 2018. And so her expertise goes beyond Francophilia and beyond uh, direct observation of social movements and protests, but is also rooted in the history of the practice of occupying these particular buildings that are being occupied again. So Kate, um, welcome back to On Tap. Nice to see you. Thank you so much. 
Um, I wondered if you wouldn't begin by giving us and our listeners um, some sort of summary of the major events of this month. Um, did I get it basically right in my introduction? And so what precisely has led to this protracted occupation? Yeah, um, so my understanding is that, uh, I mean, that where we're at now really started on March 4th um, with a grouping of street protests that had been happening for a while under the umbrella of the slogan culture in danger. Um, and and I should say too that this is all happening against um, a backdrop of increased protest generally in France this year, like many other places. And France is a very protest-centered country generally. But there have been very large-scale protests throughout the year um, against police violence um, and against a controversial new proposed law about publishing images of police officers. That uh, And so there's been this big swell, particularly in Black Bloc anarchist um, protest for months now. And the culture workers, um, uh, began, I mean, they've been protesting all year in some ways, but it really peaked in early March. So they've been protesting under this idea of culture in danger. And on March 4th, they were assembled outside the Odeon Theater, which is this major uh, theater in central Paris, in the left bank, next to the Luxembourg, Luxembourg Gardens, that also has a tremendous history of protest activity. It's a frequent hub for protest actions. It was occupied for over a month in May 68. It was occupied again in 1992. It was occupied again in 2016. And so it's a frequent site. It's it's a of occupations. And so the culture workers were there on March 4th and suggested, hey, let's spend the night there. And now it's um, a little over three weeks later and uh, and through between then and now, we've seen more and more theaters around France and also on uh, La Réunion, the island, um, occupied. And this morning, Le Point wrote that it's we're at about close to 100 theaters are occupied and they keep growing. And every day on Instagram, I'm seeing a new account for a particular theater in, a, in somewhere around France and um, and it appears to just be growing every day and not going anywhere. So is it that the, are the protests, um, do you get the sense that it is theater workers specifically, and that's why the theaters have become this important um, symbolic space, or is it sort of arts, museums, cultural institutions broadly, and they're choosing the theaters for some other reason because they're unoccupied because they're un, they're disused is the theater becoming the symbol of the moment for uh, arts and culture more broadly um, my sense uh, is that this is led by theater workers though also as in May 68 students have become a part of this the students were the first people to occupy the Colline theater in Paris which was one of the first theaters occupied after the Odeon the artistic director let them in very much like May 68 um, uh, my understanding is that uh, the kind of heart of the people engaging in this are the class of part-time arts workers, which in France are known as the intermittent du spectacle, the 
the uh, part-time part-time arts workers is the best I can uh, translate that. And they're a particular class in France that we don't have here. Um, they're artists and technicians who are paid by the government every year um, on the condition that they have worked over 500 hours over 12 months. And um, last year, Macron, the president, granted them a year's reprieve for that um, qualification. And it's supposed to expire this July. Um, they that class of arts workers is, and and it's not just uh, theater, it's sort of across the arts. Um, uh, they are asking for a second year of that to prolong it because the situation we're in. Um, and so far there's no response and that and this is the part that I feel like is really missing in the Anglophone press about this um, is is that there are very particular conditions about the labor struggle that the people involved in the protests are asking for. They're also asking for a lot of other things. We've seen marches um, against the police, against racism, um, against Islamophobia. Um, but my understanding is that it's really uh, at the heart is this part-time theater worker issue. The students, um, from what I've read, are um, protesting just the dismal situation that they're graduating into, which is something we can empathize with here um, as well. So so I think, you know, like in May 68, I think that there's sort of this core of it being starting in a theater and being uh, focused around the theaters and also bringing in groups um, related to to the theater issue um, to engage in this kind of dissent. Yeah, well, watching this from the United States, it occurs to me that we have, you know, a whole segment of the economy, artists, especially freelancers who are out of work, who don't have, you know, who have just the meager forms of social support that the um, federal government has been able to offer. I think of uh, Caridad Svich uh, on Twitter, who is frequently reminding us that there are freelance artists who are still out there and who no, no one is doing anything for. It, it makes me wonder why we don't have more organized um efforts to raise visibility for the arts in the United States? Well, I think one of the central differences is that um, in France, the theaters are symbols of the state, and that's not true here. They're state-funded. Um, they often bear the names of the cities or have um, even state emblems on or in them, uh, even you know the statues and this and that. We're seeing some awesome um, uh, messing with the statues in terms of costuming and signs some yellow vests going on statues of uh, you know great French uh, lawmakers and artists but I think that the the fact that the the theaters are symbols of the state makes them um, you know a symbolic choice I think that was true in 68 as well they also operate with state funding so the money part is just completely different uh, you know in France than it is here and I and I think separately just the role of theater in French culture is so different than in North America that it is really a part of daily life and that there are subsidies to to for students for workers to attend the theater and it's not a it's it's not a special occasion four times a year thing um, uh, there and so I think that the to occupy a theater and to set up a new world, inside a theater with the area for food and the area for sleeping and the area for hygiene and all of that is like because it's part of the state is really an act of trying to create a new state um, in a way that I don't think because of the position of theaters here um, translates. 
Well, and that's that that's really helpful, Kate, because I do think that one of the things that um, I do want to mention uh, in terms of some of the most notable durational performances of the pandemic, Karidatsvich's Daily Arts Holler is actually a really interesting document of the constancy of this question. And it's basically just she just posts every day on Twitter. And indeed, this is the text of yesterday, March 25th, on the day we're recording. Karidat writes at 1039 a.m. on March 25th, Daily Arts Holler, Arts Sector and Freelancers Hill, here, still. A year ago, people said things were going to trickle up, but all we see is down. And so this sort of little uh, sort of uh, in a Karidad Svetch, who's a playwright and a translator and an editor and a teacher, Karidad sort of is offering a poetic riff on the stasis of this kind of uh, reality. And indeed, I think one of the things that's become really clear to me, and I think that it's worth noting, that um, uh, a year ago, I don't think folks were talking about arts workers in the US theater economy. They were talking about playwrights, they were talking about actors, they were talking about um, technicians. But now we've seen a category that is beginning to be more broadly understood as all as what might be called sort of the itinerant seasonal uh, spectacular performer, like this idea that we are all freelancers here. And and then again, that theaters themselves are more in the position of um, sort of landlords. And in Broadway, that's literally the case. And so these sort of broad questions of what does it mean to be a um, a gig worker and what does it mean to be somebody whose primary status is by holding space that other people have to have permission or pay to occupy has really been activated and I do think that uh, the other thread that's really been there is no um, sense of solidarity because most of the leadership the, the calls for theatrical leadership in the uh, in the US over the last year have really um, revealed the fact that there is none that it's all um, uh, rooted in the theatrical division of labor it's sometimes unions or trade organizations, but otherwise the American theater exists with this loose web of freelance workers. And as we've seen um, in the economy broadly, freelance workers um, have been the most vulnerable in this economy, and it has opened up, I think, a new awareness in the arts sector. Uh, this is not just theater, but especially theater. Um, uh, for the sort of the question of things like universal u- universal basic income, sort of uh, uh, healthcare not tied to hours worked, all those kinds of questions. And so I do think there's a potential here, or at least I'm just seeing more folks talking about arts workers and thinking of that as broadly inclusive and not segmented within a theatrical division of labor. You know, Kate, you bring up the different sort of cultural positions that the theater has in France in the sense that it's, you know, very tightly connected to a sense of French national identity and greater support of the arts in in France um, in general. I'm reminded of a, a essay that one of our graduate students, Holly Gableman, is writing now about two London theaters and their responses to the shutdown last year. And these took the these took the form of sort of durational art pieces or installations. One, which I think was titled um, hashtag Missing Live Theater at the National Theater facility, was a kind of installation of pink and white barrier tape all over the facade of the building, signifying and drawing attention to the closure of that building. And another one called Caretaker, um, which is at the Royal Court Theater, they put a, a camera inside the empty theater and live streamed it, and you could, you know, log on and visit and see live video of the empty inside of the theater. And occasionally there would be a voiceover message um, that broadcast. And these these strike me as yet another difference. I mean, I think 
there may have been such durational pieces or installation pieces in the United States. Um, but of course, these these um, London theaters, they're not the sites of occupation. There's not the same sort of culture of protest and, and public demonstration, perhaps, that there is in France. So I do think, I mean, one of the things I've been interested in in the U.S. is um, thinking about the way theaters can be a part of a lot of the protest movements we've been seeing happening. And I think we've been seeing this, we saw this um, at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival after the wildfires in September. We, I, this has been happening at, um, is it Abrams Art Center in New York, um, in Minneapolis after um, uh, George Floyd was murdered. We saw this with Mixed Blood Theater in Portland, um, there's been some examples of this too during the protests of theaters um, opening up their spaces to, as mutual aid hubs. And and I think this is happening at, with some of the occupied theaters in France too, where it's like, okay, here's something we can do as theater artists with spaces is we can, we're not making theater in the way we normally do in our spaces, but we have an opportunity to transform these spaces um, to serve as community hubs and to distribute food and to um, host activists or give them safe spaces. Open Your Lobby was an example of this over the summer of theaters opening their lobby to protesters to give them uh, water, bathrooms, places to plug in their phones, which again, all of this against the pandemic, you know, where where there's not spaces to do that necessarily. And so I, I this is one of the things I'm most excited about uh, about the last year and when talking earlier about listening to you talk about sort of what we're gonna take away from this year. Um, I hope we remember that even in social distancing and even with legal restrictions on going out, like, and again, in France, what's happening right now is happening against a lockdown. We don't have that here. Like where you, to leave your house, you have to have a piece of paper and you can only go a certain distance from your house. So even in social distancing, even with legal restrictions on going out, people are still gonna come together. They're gonna come together in theaters and rebuild societies inside of them. They're going to use them as mutual aid hubs and take care of people's daily and basic needs when the state isn't doing that. To me, that's one of the most important and hopeful things of the last year and something that I would just really hope we take away and remember and continue doing that. We have opportunities to use these theaters um, to, to help the communities that we live in. Yeah, just, just to hop in here, I think that what I find interesting is the tension, you know, that exists between artists uh, and theater owners within the United States. And if you can look to art subsidies in the midst of the pandemic, specifically the Save Our Stages initiative in which federal funds go to theater owners as opposed to individual artists. And I think that, um, you know, that relationship change, that difference in terms of the pipeline where the funding goes uh, demonstrates just uh, a shift or at least a severe difference in priorities around how the government or how the state at large thinks about helping out artists. Uh, And you might say, well, what about the calls for a new federal theater project? But that seems to be more of rhetoric, <laughs> you know, in terms of it's uh, rather than activism uh, in terms of on the ground, boots in the ground activism. So I just 
I'm, I'm intrigued by the stark differences between what exists in the United States as opposed to France and other places. Well, I would say that um, one of the things I have been impressed by by some of the calls for a sort of a secretary level, cabinet level officer that deals with cultural workers, like the cultural economies, is a much more uh, forthright and clarifying argument about the uh, la- the value of the labor, both in regional and national economies. And that's something that I've witnessed in a couple different, like when I was in New Mexico and the film subsidy was under attack in the legislature, arts advocates weren't very good at sort of speaking the language of policymakers in terms of sort of advocating for the value of cultural industries in those particular rhetorics. So there has been a refinement and an awareness and often referencing back and learning about uh, previous previous initiatives. But I... Um, I, I would also note that I, I, I'm sort of more uh, as well on the, the idea of like what have been the lessons learned among, among uh, theater managers. Because one thing I was really struck by in one of the articles or somewhere about three or four months ago, somebody was talking about Broadway and did the analogy that Broadway is often described as a shorthand for theater broadly. It's often described as kind of a sort of a, a coherent whole. But what she said was this revealed that Broadway itself was not not only a real estate district, but was a loose aggregate of about 42 small businesses, all of which were independent. And so to begin to understand that theater in this country is a whole loose aggregate of independent operations, some of operating for, for profit some as community-facing organizations and some as commercial enterprises, but there is no understanding of them as a, as a sort of a industry. The industry is comprised by the workers that shuffle among these different locations. And so it's a really interesting revelation of how the, uh, how the um, ecosystem of contemporary theater actually operates, which is why the move that Jacob Padrone did this year I thought was so powerful. Jacob Padrone is the newly installed artistic director at Long Wharf Theater in New Haven, Connecticut. And uh, instead of announcing a season, they, they put off their season and then they launched an initiative called One City Many Stages. And they basically took their operation and worked as arts in partnership with all kinds of community organizations. So in, as well as thinking of what would it mean for this building to be a hub, but what would the network that is activated at a theater, how could it be useful in a broader understanding of a longer, of a bigger community? So this idea of what are the resources that theater offers? It offers sometimes extraordinary facilities, but also it offers extraordinarily talented, skilled folks who are committed often to community values of communication and community building. So how do we understand those resources as valuable separate from a ticket sale. How do we understand? And I think we've seen some different leadership models that have come from this. Um, but uh, it's again, it's what, what, how will the pressure to make money again, since so much in the, since all of these different theaters have different reliance on ticket sales, and it's what is colloquially called butts in seats as the reason for existence, will those pressures <laughs> overtake some of these lessons? It's a good question and, and one that, I mean, I would love to have the time to expand on this, but you, I wonder, sort of merging these two topics, what theaters will be doing once they're reopened and how many of the streaming uh, uh, offerings they continue to, to offer and, and to what extent the revenue model will continue to depend on just, um, you know, selling tickets to, for, for seats and subscriptions and things like that. Um, uh, Kate, thank you so much for, for coming back on, on tap and for, for weighing in on yet another extremely timely topic uh, on which you have extraordinary expertise. Um, I, I think you're, you're, like the field, you're like the field reporter on on tap. You're like out going out and bringing back <laughs> the, the, the specialized observations and expertise. It's great. I mean, my dream is to be the field reporter for like protests to on tap. So I'm, I'm here for you. Yeah. Well, thank you for and, the and- invitation. 
there, there will hopefully be some occasion in the near future for, for uh, Judith Molina to be back in the news and we can have you on yet again. Can I say one more thing, which is that if people want to follow this, the Odeon, Occupied Odeon has an Instagram that's updated quite frequently, um, daily, multiple times, and has great feeds if you want to see footage from inside the theater. And they're also reporting from their colleagues at other theaters around France. So for people who are, and the other thing I would say is that we're now starting to see, um, as in May 68, some backlash. Earlier this week, the big occupied theater in Bordeaux was um, emptied by the police. So it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. Um, the lockdown just started a week ago today. And so to see what the, the pushback is, um, and I would advise uh, if you're, if for those interested to, to check out what's going on Instagram, which is a whole other conversation about how the organizing is happening now that we touched on last time I was here too. And so um, thank you as always for the invitation and I appreciate your work. Absolutely. We'll put those links up on the page. Thank you so much, Kate. So we have, um, I don't know, five, seven minutes remaining uh, d- during which we can we can talk about our third topic. We watched on Netflix uh, The 40-Year-Old Version. This is a, a comedy film, independent comedy film that was released um, last year on Netflix starring uh, Rada Blank, directed by Rada Blank, and featuring, uh, I think, a pretty what appears to be a pretty straightforward interpretation of her own phase in life when um uh mulling her i don't know uh her reactions to her experience of being uh, a playwright pushing 40 um began to shift her creative output into other arenas including rap um so brian uh i think we all enjoyed watching this it's one of those great sort of um, films about the theater that demonstrates a real knowingness about the contemporary theater world. Why don't you give us your sort of critical impression? Um, well, I, I'm a, a, a f- quite a fan of the of the film in some ways for its uh, use of theater as a site, not as a site, of not as a device, but it really is a site to activate certain sets of conversations. And one of the things I really like about it is like we've got this space of creativity that occupies the film in a few different ways. One thing, it's rather Blank was the screenwriter, the performer, and the director, and also the producer. But there was also this uh, thread of what, it, where does creativity live, and what is the purpose of creativity? What does what's a measure of success? All these kind of questions, but they're framed in a few different temporalities. One is her new discovered creativity is discovering how to be a rapper, and then also she's a teaching artist, um, a form of the uh, the artistic economy that we don't often talk about, especially in certain cities, about how many artists make their living not teaching in this, not by te- being teachers in the schools, but by being teaching artists in public school districts. And then also her challenges in negotiating what might be called the nonprofit theater adjacent to the culturally specific theater. Like this question of what does a, what does a black playwright um, what obligations do they have to themselves and the status and the power and prestige of certain venues for just notions of cultural cultural responsibility or cultural integrity or or etc and so i just loved how how casually all of that detail was laid in in a story that was very relatable as a story of grief and for me i read the story as a story of grief the framing device is her mother and the passing of her mother um but it's also a grief of what we thought the arts were and what the arts actually are and how every artist has to have a moment of reckoning with what they thought they were going to do in the arts and how can they actually if they are an artist how do they live forward in and uh, as an artist when they now understand the absurdity of the structures that prevent their reaching what they thought were their goals 
So I just think it's a really remarkable document. It's so rare that something like this comes along. And I love the thing I will say just of my last thing. I love the idiosyncratic way awards bodies have recognized this. I mean, I don't know that I'm aware of another film that Sundance recognized for directing, BAFTA, the British Oscars, recognized for acting, and uh, NAACP Image Awards, um, for breakthrough, you know, so it's this kind of like BAFTA Sundance and NAACP Image Awards. They all thought it was awesome. <laughs> That's an interesting constellation that we don't often see. And so even though it's fallen a little bit out of the awareness piece, it's still widely accessible on Netflix. And it's really worth looking at in terms of a, a, a sort of a, a critical but still open hearted look at what creativity means in uh, the contemporary arts economy pre pandemic. I agree. I I totally enjoyed watching uh, this film, and you know, part of it is that it gives you an insight into just the challenges of being a professional artist, and and I think that it's a combination of everything from the expectations around body image uh, to ideas of success at a certain age in life, and if anything, you know, what I take with me from this film is a real sense of of sincerity and passion for the arts that exists at a number of levels, but interestingly enough, not at commercial theater level, yep. right? So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's a real sense of passion and sincerity and realness uh, to the arts industries within high schools, and you know, you know, within the sort of uh, you know within the uh, within Radha's. Uh, uh, own life, you know, but then it's like when it gets to the conversation with the commercial theater producers, you know, that's the one category of people who I feel are the most villainized in this film. And, you know, it's, it's, it opens up a conversation about the gatekeeping function of producers, you know, uh, and how they play an outsized role and what stories can be shared. And here we don't here we here the commercial Broadway is offstage. We're still in this sort of the top tier not for profit. So it's this it's yes. this realm that most people watching the film, arguably on Netflix, might only think that theater is Broadway. And here we have this elaborate arts ecosystem that is outside the recording industry and is outside the commercial apparatus of Broadway and is still dynamic and complicated and challenging. Yeah, that was one thing that was interesting and feel, felt very particular and true to life because she, I mean, this perhaps this gives too much of the plot away, but um, uh, Rada Blank ends up agreeing to write a play that is supported by a you know producer played by Reed Burney and feels that she has compromised because it's it's this play about gentrification in Harlem and it seems to conclude with a kind of conciliatory note between uh, a, a white neighbor who's young and and sort of yuppie and then the longtime uh, residents of Harlem who run a store so the playwright the main character ends up feeling uh, that she's become a sellout. Um, but all that she's done is, you know, basically get paid to to write a play for this not-for-profit um, producer. It's not a, she hasn't written some crass commercial thing for Broadway. Instead, it's just something that sort of takes the edge off of a gentrification story and pre- and, pre- and presents it in a way that the um, white funders and and sort of arts gatekeepers can can feel good about. And at the same time, she's having her creative uh, and personal life transformed by discovering 
her potent, her her talent for rapping and going to rap battles, etc. Well, and also, um, so yeah, it felt very knowing. Well, and that and I love that piece that you point to, panel, is because she, there's this sort of running joke where you'll work on this blank, this musical about blank next, right? And that that's supposed right. to be that this this conciliation of her sort of adapting the plays to the demands of the white director and the white producer, even though she her simple asks, none of which are met, but she does everything they ask. All of this, there's this one moment with her agent who's her longtime friend who's a uh, who's also a remarkable presence in the film as a uh, a Korean American gay uh, best friend uh, who's her agent sort of says this is what you're doing because Broadway's next this idea of understanding the sacrifices of the latter but then also understanding that um, uh, none of those are promised and even though she does everything that they ask they don't do anything that she asks and so we get a sense of that kind of the inequity of of what does it mean to be a to be an agreeable artist um, in order to sort of ensure one's access to the next potential opportunity yeah I enjoyed I mean reviewing this film with with you two uh, also being I don't know Gen Xers who grew up possibly maybe absorbing some 90s hip-hop i felt like oh this is very targeted towards you know the theater professor who will recognize you know tribe called quest as having some sort of resonance with new york and 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 black (laughs) black culture and, and black arts um but it's interesting brian i wasn't aware of the of the sort of critical reception um I'm glad that it's reaching audiences that are not so niche that they would say, listen to this podcast on a regular basis. Well, and as Blank has shared is that she had stepped away from theater some while ago in some ways and had been working in film and, and working on episodic television for, for a bit and had uh, sort of, but I do think that there is a kind of a reciprocal respect for the artists that she knows working in the field. And so, uh, and indeed, as Peter Kim, who happens to be uh, my, my colleague who teaches here at Princeton, uh, he played the, the role of Archie. Uh, he has an interesting article that I encourage folks to look up, a couple different pieces he's written about his experience being taken seriously as a fully human, um, uh, the full fullness of his art- artistry being taken seriously, not just as a as a Korean American artist, but also as an actor who then has a dramaturgical voice. The ways in which uh, she valued his dramaturgical contributions was not unlike what we often see in the theater that doesn't always translate well to film, which is this idea of understanding the dramaturgical sophistication of actors, which is actually staged in an interesting way where an actor that knows the play in its earlier iteration is offering some subtle critique of the way that Blank's character is changing the play to suit this new production. And so this question of the the intimacies of collaboration. Also, I would say that um, the uh, it's a shout out also to those black and white films of New York, uh, whether yes. that be a, uh, whether it be directed by Spike Lee or 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 others. Um, that was it's very much a kind of a um, uh, you know it's an interesting entry into that broad canon, whether it be Woody Allen, Noah Baumbach, or Spike Lee, of this kind of idea of a person finding their place in a city, and why black and white, and it's a really fascinating choice. Um, well, wonderful. Uh, I'm glad we all enjoyed that. Uh, listeners, you should check it out on Netflix. Um, we have time now for our drafts. Uh, listeners to On Tap know that the drafts segment is for our 
sort of musings, our thoughts, what's been on our mind recently in relation to theater and performance studies. Um, uh, Harvey, what do you have by way of a draft for this episode? Yeah, well, this goes back to my uh, first comment about this class that I'm teaching on African-American theater. I'm in the process of uh, mapping out a new edition of my Cambridge Companion to African-American theater so that my... the the book that currently exists came out in 2011 or 2012, so it's been a decade. And just trying to map out what's different about black theater in 2021 or or imagining 2022 than it was in 2010. So that's what's on my mind right now. Any any uh, potential thoughts for the way it's different, the way you'll update? Uh, I mean, there's a lot. There's if you if you think about the number of Pulitzer Prize winners, if you look at uh, the rise of Jeremy O'Harris, you look at uh, the increased popularity of the work of Robert O'Hara, who obviously was around before before now. Obviously, um, you know, just I think that there's a uh, an opportunity to think about black queer drama and black queer theater much more explicitly uh, uh, and more engaged than in previous iterations of sort of scholarship that existed pre 2010. So that's what I'm thinking about right now. But it's and then also, I think we're moving away from the idea of there always being one exceptional African American artist at a time, right? So, you know, like every, every few years there's the one. But now we're, we're fortunate, and it's and it's thankfully arrived to be at this moment in which you can count and name numerous successful African American artists who are thriving at the top of their game, as opposed to it having to be. August Wilson, and then Susan Laurie Parks, and then Lynn Nottage, right? So, um, you know, talking about that sense of variability, and therefore, differences and varieties of approach and voice uh, requires revision across the whole manuscript, actually. Yeah, it sounds sounds really interesting. Sounds A lot has happened in 10 years. Um, Brian, what have you got for us? I never know what to do for the draft, so I'm still learning the genre of the draft. But um, I, the thing I came in thinking about, the thing that's been keeping me going that I've been thinking about that actually structures my days a little bit is I've become a really um, dedicated user of on my Roku device, which connects to my conventional television. Um, I use uh, the criteri- my Criterion channel subscription as well as my TCM app um, because they both have a mechanism which is very useful for me, which is they have exp- um, like the, th- the films that are leaving at the end of the month on Criterion and then uh, whatever airs on TCM is usually available for a few days afterward, but it expires randomly. So it's enabled me to really sort of mix up my viewing, but with a degree of intentionality and so sort of really just sort of watch a bunch of stuff and watch actors work and artists work and especially outside of the canon you know outside of the ones the the films I know I'm supposed to watch like discovering my appreciation for weird uh for a certain kind of film from the later 1930s or early 1940s my love of 1960s horror you know these kinds of things um introducing my which inevitably introduces me to sort of one actor who's part of a larger network that connects back to the theater in one. So there's, it's always fun to watch it and have the one designer or the one actor or the one feature that just sort of, what's their story? And then research them and realize what theatrical world they open up. So for me, it's using the the uh, the forced viewing that causes that it's leaving the channel. Uh, it allows me to, to dive into things I would otherwise not choose to watch. That's fantastic. Are those is that in any way related to your culture posts that you've been doing, where you you're putting up these sort of fantastic, 
you know, poster art. The poster and, on and Twitter. Yeah. Like, so whatever I, yeah. whatever I, whatever I post on Twitter, like, so if you follow me on Twitter at stinky Lulu, S T I N K Y L U L U on Twitter, you'll see that, um, four five, six days a week, there'll be a late in the day post, which gathers three movie posters, uh, and, or two movie posters and maybe a play poster. That's what I watched that day. And so when I'm doing the incredible laborious work of updating my Canvas pages for class or whatever, often I will have a movie playing. And so instead of just like finding the channel that Law & Order is airing on, it's been a nice way for me <laughs> to um, have that secondary viewing that is uh, actually giving me a lot of inspiration. So yeah, you can see what I've been watching by watching my Twitter feed. That's great. Well, these are good sort of late pandemic uh I don't know. I don't want to say survival or coping, but just sort of living uh, practices. Absolutely. Right? It's something I would not have learned to do, but it sort of allows me to be a culture hound, but also within the limitations of what we have. And it's fun. That's great. Um, I, I suppose for my draft, uh, I, I don't know, perhaps not like you, Brian, and I'm getting used to it, but I feel like I'm just this far into the pandemic in this year, I just feel a kind of blankness in my mind. I feel like, what have I been thinking about recently? And I don't really know. Um, but but one thing that has been on my mind that's been work-related is the, is the season that my department is producing this year. And without going into too much detail, we basically, over the summer, like a lot of um, departments or, or institutions decided to throw out the season we had planned and launch a whole bunch of different um, projects and different modalities that we gambled early on, most of which would be able to survive whatever pandemic restrictions were happening. So we had basically all streaming offerings in the fall, but we, the, out of that came fantastic uh, video produced dance concerts filmed outdoors um, for our WashU Dance Theater Project. Um, our, our new play festival became an offering in our season, and that was done remotely. And now we've got, um, oh, and, and the Black Rap um, did a co-production with us, um, uh, reminiscing on and meditating on um, police killings and protests and the way young people... And, and young black people in particular are coping with that. And now we've got the next batch of our season about to be ready to be produced. And we're having our first live in-person production, The COVID Mysteries, which we produ- we created a, a sort of medieval-inspired wagon that will be outdoors. We got approval to have a distanced audience outdoors on the quad to do a, a reimagined medieval mystery play on about COVID written by my colleague Rob Hinkey and directed by Bill Whitaker. We have more dance concerts coming out. We, have a, we commissioned four alums to write short plays that are all being staged and filmed and shown remotely. Um, uh, and we produced this thing called the Virtual Platform, which allows student creative work to just be transferred and shown on the department's website. So we have audio plays, we have short scenes, we have monologues, all from our students. So it actually ends up being a tremendous amount of creative output. And it sort of snuck up on me. I've been so occupied with administration and teaching and other things that this season has happened. And I'm, I'm wondering how it's been going at other places and, and what kind of plays and dance and you know, different modalities of, of sharing people have done. And I'm hoping that there will be some sort of, maybe at a future ATHA or ASTER, a, a sort of retrospective of what we learned and, and what worked in uh, college theater and dance this year. Okay, can I make a suggestion? 
if anybody's still listening um, and your department had a particularly innovative or exciting or inspiring offering, perhaps you can let a tag on tap podcast with it so we can begin to build a sort of a loose archive of some of the extraordinary on-campus creativity of arts makers and arts arts teachers this year. Because, yeah, I think it's um, I've, I've been trying to keep track of some stuff, but there's been some amazing uh amazing work. We right now have in partnership with McCarter something called Manic Monologues, which is a self-guided asynchronous experience, which really reflects about mental illness in the context of the pandemic, but also in the context of contemporary arts life and contemporary higher education. And it's been an extraordinary collaboration that uh, that emerged uh, at the juncture of all of these uncertain, all of the unusualness of this year. So there's just been some extraordinary work happening. It'd be loved to, I'd love to hear people brag on their colleagues or themselves. Absolutely. So yeah, tweet at the, the the podcast account, and we'll retweet and and try to get a little bit of uh, uh, show and tell going on Twitter with these projects. Um, <laughs> Har- Harvey. Brian, uh, thank you so much. Uh, Kate Bredesen, who has signed off, thank you again for for sharing your your insights and your expertise with us. And uh, listeners, we'll have another podcast for you in about a month. On Tap is produced with the support of the Performing Arts Department of Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. Our associate producer is Carly Kessler. Our intro music is by Septahelix, and our outro music is by Gabriel Kahane. You can learn more about the podcast at our website, ontappod.com, contact us at our email, hosts at ontappod.com, and follow us on Twitter, at ontappodcast. 